Hi guys, I'm Sean McCambridge. For over 20 years, I've been inquisitive, learning and experimenting with different ways to leverage our greatest asset, our minds, to work for us rather than against us. Join me as I engage with these inspirational guests to provide you knowledge and insights to help you achieve more. This show is sponsored by Stellar Recruitment and inspired by a company purpose and why, which is inspiring growth and changing lives. Thanks very much for tuning in. Hey guys, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, An amazing episode here today with Matt Rogers, uh, inspirational individual. I think we've all seen him for his exploits on the field, but man, what an individual behind all of that that's made all that possible, whether it's as an athlete, a parent, and just an individual. So I've got no doubt you'll really enjoy the podcast today. Thanks for tuning in. Super lucky to have Dual International and I think uh, overall inspirational individual, uh, Matt Rogers, with us today. I'm currently reading his book, which is uh, a great read. So yeah, thanks for taking the time to, to join us here, Matt. I'm really looking forward to having a bit of a chat. I guess the first question I've got for you is, you know, watching from afar and now obviously reading your book, you seem like you've always been a person who's striving for something. You've always got this itch to achieve. As you look back, and there's been many achievements in your sport and career, but, you know, is there one that sort of stands out that you're particularly proud of as you sort of cast your mind back over all the things you've done? Uh, I think I probably couldn't put my finger on one achievement. I look back over my career now as I reflect after being retired for so long that there was just too many amazing things that happened throughout that time to sort of put my finger on one. But if if I had to say anything, it was just probably stay in the path. Mm. It's so easy to get distracted and be drawn away from what the actual goal is. Uh, Particularly as a young man, it's easy to sort of get sort of dragged away by influences around you. I had a lot of good friends that didn't make it to where I got to. But that wasn't really their goal. But I didn't get caught up in that life. Mm. Um, I stayed really committed to what I wanted to achieve and a lot of doubters along the way. So I really intent on proving a lot of people wrong, particularly my teachers who would <laughs> often give me a hard time about not being focused on their schoolwork and more focused on my football. I had all my eggs in one basket. And to be honest, like I just think that's the only way you can succeed. The old don't pull your eggs in one basket, I think it's a cop out. I think it's, it's a way to go, oh, well, it didn't work. Glad I've got this over here. I think if you want to truly be successful, all your eggs have got to be in that one basket and you've got to make it happen. And that's been my philosophy and, you know, it worked. And if it didn't work, I would have just gone and put more my eggs in another basket. It's the reality of it. I mean, I'm not into doing things for the sake of doing them. And I feel like the stress of that made me do what was required to get to where I got to. It's not every player gets a prize in the world of professional sports you, you got to make it happen and without me having my sole focus on achieving that I don't think I would have it's so easy to get caught up in the world that so much that's going on that if you don't have that zeroed in focus you're probably not going to achieve what it is that you want to achieve so for me probably the most gratifying thing when I look back on my career is that I did it that I stayed on the path from the age of probably around 14 is where I sort of went, right, this is what I'm doing. I went through a bit of a rough patch before that and then really sort of rewrited the ship and realised, okay, this is where I'm headed. And um, there was no one around me that had any doubt 
about what I was trying to do and don't get in my way. You know, that was the reality of it. And, and if I had friends that tried to, I didn't change my goal, I just changed my friends. That was the way I lived and that's why I got to where I got to. Yeah, well, I love that extreme focus and, and I forget who said it, but they said, forget about a plan B. Just you got a plan A and you're all in on plan A. So it sounds like you're well, that, a good exponent of that. that. That was what I was going to name my book, No Plan B. Oh, really? Because ah. there was no plan B. No. That's it. That's gold. Yeah, because I remember in the book, you must have been uneasy at TSS, not enjoying boarding school and all the rest of it. And I think you rang your folks up in Darwin and said, oh, what are your thoughts on me sort of getting out of this place? It sort of feels like jail. And I think your dad said, give us, uh, give us 24 hours or so. And he come back with the opportunity to be a plumber in Darwin, so you yeah. may have become Darwin's best plumber, but it seems like yeah. the path you took paid some good dividends, so maybe yeah. you made that right decisions. Well, he knew, he knew what he was doing, the old man. Yeah, he was strategic. <laughs> Trying to position me. He played you like a fiddle by the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah. On a lot of note, we were sort of talking earlier before the show started, you've played against some amazing individuals over time, and, and obviously you're an athletic guy, and obviously your record speaks for itself, but not always the biggest chap out there. Keen to know from your perspective, you played against the monstrous and powerful Jonah Lomu. You played against some huge leagueies over time as well. But who was the hardest bloke you ever had to tackle? Look, at my size, they were all pretty hard to tackle. But I, I always <laughs> just used to think, if I can just stand in the way, I've always thought, like, defence is, I was never going to put a hit on anyone, let's be honest. But I always thought, like, if I can stand in the way, and defence is an attitude. If you want to stop someone, you're going to do everything you can to stop them. Sometimes physics just doesn't allow you to stop a 120-kilo guy against an 80-kilo guy and the force. But if I could stand in the way, and I was always prepared to stand in the way, enough yeah. to slow him down that I might, someone can help me. Look, as a kid, I remember 17 years old, you know, playing Australian schoolboys, and Jonah Lomu was the number eight for the New Zealand schools. And I think every scrum they had, he picked the ball up off the back of the scrum and ran straight at me. So <laughs> there's probably none tougher than that. But, I mean... I mean, some of the battles on the field I had, you know, I just, there's one guy, he was never a big guy, but he used to play, I think for the Highlanders, mm -hmm. a guy named Tony Brown. Tony Brown, yeah. He was just a tough mongrel and just, was just hard to play. He just made my life hard. <laughs> and they're the games I remember more than that one-off tackle. Just yep. these guys that were just super competitive, tough, and just would not give you an inch. Those are the sort of players. I played against a guy in the start of my rugby league career, a guy named Justin Lumens. He played for the North Queensland Cowboys and his footwork and his, he wasn't a big guy, but his strength and it was just always a really tough game playing against him. They're the sort of games that I remember as being hard, not that one tackle that was sort of like, oh, this guy's a hard bloke to tackle. But yeah, those sort of competitors that you play against, you know, the Tony Browns of the world, the Richie McCaws of the world, these guys that just compete relentlessly for 80 minutes, they're the ones that you sort of that, that stick in your mind. Yeah, but obviously if you're out there on super rugby pitch or a te rugby test match pitch or a NRL pitch, every player out there is a competitor and they're going to be tough to to take down and um, there was plenty of them. Absolutely. No, I went to school with Tony Brown who's a few years ahead of me, but yeah, you're right, tenacious little fella, mm. really tough guy. Yeah. And I guess moving beyond all that, sounds like you, you come a long way from, I think you said in the book, you're a four-year-old and you were making some textbook tackles uh, on debut <laughs> uh, and you thought you were cleaning up and going well with the tackle count. The only problem was you're tackling your own players and your dad was shaking his head on the <laughs> sideline. So obviously shaky start, but you come good. I want to talk to you about yep. role models. And I think that 
for you as a kid, it just seemed like your dad was a god. He was everything you wanted to be mm. and you admired him so much for what he achieved in the game and him as a human being and I think that's great. I'm a father. I've got three young boys. Hopefully, in some fashion, they look up to me and that's my goal. That's what drives me. But I'm keen to sort of understand from your point of view, what was it about your father that you admired so much? And for people that perhaps aren't as familiar, perhaps he was Cronulla's greatest ever player, the best mm. player that ever come out yeah. of such a powerful club. So what is it about your father that you just admired so much, mate? I would say that he didn't try to influence me through words. He influenced me through actions. Um, you know, I just remember as a kid, we had this house with a big carport. I remember as a kid, six, seven, eight years old, just sitting in the carport watching Dad train. I remember him sitting in the kitchen with his dietitian and getting his food right. I just remember all this stuff happening before it was sort of the cool thing to do. He was doing things, he was showing me, not telling me. Mm. And as a young, aspiring, wannabe athlete, wannabe NRL player or wannabe rugby player, that was probably what sticks in my mind the most. Yeah, it wasn't an easy relationship between my dad and I. He was my hero and all I wanted was his attention and I never really got it. I was just striving so hard and trying to do all the right things and it seemed like every time, which wasn't often, he'd come and watch me play. He wouldn't tell me how good I went. He'd tell me all the things I did wrong. And, and I think he was just preparing me, whether it was bad parenting or preparing me for what a professional athlete's life is like. Now, often it's the bad things that get picked up on as opposed to the good things. In the end, he did a good job because when I came into the professional ranks, nothing that anybody else could say could hurt me more than what my dad would say. Mm. I'd copped it from my dad, so I was ready and I didn't really give a rip what anybody else thought. What I cared about was what he thought. He just prepared me in a sense that I was ready when I stepped out of school to go into the professional ranks because I knew after seeing it, you know, what it took. I was under no illusions about the work that was needed to go in, under no illusions of the sacrifices that needed to be made. And from a young age, I was doing that. I certainly wasn't an angel as a kid. I wasn't partying every weekend. I wasn't, I was focused on the end goal. And that came from watching my dad at the highest level still do the things that got him to the highest level. Probably too young. Well, I wasn't even born when he started. I played for Australia in 1973. I wasn't born until 76. And in 1980, 81, 82, I just remember watching him as this little child, just seeing the work that he put in, seeing him sweat, seeing him and his teammate. Perry Haddock, who used to come over and train, they'd hit the bag and they'd have a boxing coach and the extras they'd do, they'd, the runs that they'd go on, the road runs that were huge back in the day, he'd do his training and he'd come and do his road runs and just come back just lathered in sweat and just, he was like this Greek god to me. I was this little <laughs> kid looking up at this giant of a man who was just ripped to the bone and, and then I was a kid trying to compete with him and him just not giving me an inch, him not giving me any no mercy at all, an eight-year-old kid just flogging me and everything that we did. And then I'd go and whinge to mum and then he'd come back and he'd, he'd give it to me harder. He'd be like, you want to whinge to your mum about not winning? You want me to give you a victory, do you? You want me to give you a win? He goes, you've got to earn every win. No one's ever going to give it to you. And it just hardened me, you know, to the point now where my kids don't like it when I compete with them. <laughs> although, although they're starting to get better than me, so I've, I've stopped that. <laughs> Yeah, I experienced that on my run with my young fellow this morning, but I love that for a couple of reasons. I mean, it seems to me 
what your dad did in the first instance, he role modeled greatness. Now, he was out there in the field, yeah. he was performing and all the rest of it, but you seen the preparation that allowed him to be great on that sort of side. Of it. Yeah. But I think the other thing, and you talk about that, I think, uh, in your book, but then certainly in the podcast you did with Howie, you talk about this resilience and the fact that everyone gets a ribbon these days. And the reality is mm. not everyone gets a ribbon in life, right? You either win or you lose. No. You either get the job no. or you don't. Ribbons for yeah. everyone. Well, you know doesn't about represent, that, right? yeah. doesn't represent the real world. So it doesn't sound like your dad was a big no. advocate of that philosophy of ribbons for everyone. And it seems <laughs> no. to me that, no. geez, for all the amazing things you've achieved in life and for the fact that you're so young, you're a grandfather, you're a dual international, you've been wrapped up in charities, you've been on TV shows, you've done so much, but you're still relatively young. I think that resilience has been a cornerstone to obviously your achievements. And, you know, without sort of being too, too somber about things, I mean, geez, you've navigated a lot, Matt, reading your book, and I'll rattle off a few things. Obviously, firstly, young fella, your older brother, Don, you must have given you a hell of a yeah. time as a young fella, so you survived that. You obviously become a bit of a, a delinquent in uh, Lennox, having a great old time I surfing did. and up to some other activities that weren't <laughs> yeah. necessarily uh, yeah. extracurricular uh, activities, yeah. Yeah, endorsed by, you know, uh, some others and you were shipped off to boarding school, which, you know, would have been hard as a young fellow moving away from your family. You're really mm. close with your family. You've had a marriage breakdown. You've lost both your parents at such a young age. And we talked about how much you hold your dad in high regard, but it seems like your mum, the word that springs out of the book and something that I hold dear to me as a parent is it just seems like she made you feel safe. As a parent, she made you feel safe. It was that safe environment. You feel, no matter what, she was in your corner and she looked after you. Amazing. You've raised four kids. I'm trying to raise four kids and that's a journey in <laughs> itself. I understand you've had a rare form of arthritis. So you've had so many challenges. But I mean, what have those challenges taught you? How is that sort of serving you now having, you know, come through the other side or still navigating some of those challenges? Well, that's sounding... Um flippant about it what it taught me is no one really cares the people close to you care mm. but the reality is the world keeps turning mm. the sun keeps rising mm -hmm. and if you want to sit and wallow in self-pity <laughs> you're just going to get run over that's the reality of it like mm. i feel like i perform best when i'm under stress it actually makes me feel good mm -hmm. you know having things going on and being under stress and having to move the most unproductive times in my life there have just been times when there's been no goal, no stress on me, no time frames, nothing to shoot mm -hmm. for. I found like through the tough times, it's, it's just getting back to living again for me. And what that means is, it's like, okay, what's the next goal? Mm -hmm. You know, I find that if I've got friends in my life that are tired all the time and down, it's just for one reason, they don't have a goal. They're not mm -hmm. fighting for anything. Mm -hmm. you know, they're just tired. I'm always tired. I'm always, you know, it's like, get a goal, mate. Mm. Get something to fire you up in the morning. Work it out. Work mm. out what you're fighting for. Mm. Even if it's take your family on a holiday at the end of the year, set some financial goals, put some money aside, get excited about mm. what you're doing. Mm. Like if you don't have that, like what have you got? Like really, you're just going to go to work every day, come home, put your brain in the TV set, then take it out in the morning, go to work, come back, go in that cycle and the weekends get blind and then you do it again each week. Is that mm. a life? Like mm. really? It just blows my mind. And, you know, people that, you know, I'm prepared to sit down and really work out, you know, they're more interested in, you know, working out what they're doing on the weekend than working out what their life's going to look like in five mm, years' time. Mm. No, I just won't have people like that around me. I, I'm not interested in that. 
I want people who are focused and motivated and fired up about something. Look, some of my friends who aren't like that, I try to help get like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if they can't get focused, I tend to see relationships sort of drift apart. That's the reality of it. Like our, my wife and I you now go away every three months, sit down and chat about our financial goals, chat mm-hmm. about our business goals, chat about our relationship goals, chat about our children's goals. Every three months we spend a couple of days away just together. Just We dump the kids yeah. and it's just us. And we do it. It sets us up and it creates a great life for us. I mean, I mm. could not do my life without my wife. Like, I just couldn't. Yeah. I mean, we've become such a great team. And she says the same about me. I'm hoping she's not saying it tongue-in-cheek, but I'm sure she, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's legitimate. We love that, you know, and it just creates excitement in our life. It does create stress in our life mm. because we've got busy lives, mm. you know, between our charity, what she mm. does in, in radio production, what I do in our civil business, in our sports management business and in radio. It's a busy world, but busy is yeah. good. You know, I love it. I love being on the go. You know, it makes me feel alive. I love that for a couple of reasons. I love that clearly you're living a very intentional life. You're very intentional about the way you live Mm. versus, I guess, the other extreme that the person you sort of described as that person that just exists. Life just passes them by. And five years down the track, they're probably going to do the exact same thing, which isn't overly fulfilling on that sort of side of things. So I love the fact that you're really intentional. But you talk about Mm. that pressure. Is pressure been always an environment that's brought out the best in you or have you sort of learnt to operate well under pressure? Like I'm interested to understand whether it's intrinsic or you've sort of evolved. I think when I was a young kid, from what I can remember, from the age of four or five years old, I was the son of Steve Rogers, the Australian mm-hmm. captain, you know, one of the greatest players in the game, one of the greatest players ever, and everybody knew who we were. Mm-hmm. Every football game I went and played to, you'd hear the whispers, oh, that's Steve Rogers' son, you know, that, all that sort of stuff. And I feel like I thrived on it. And I play a lot of golf nowadays, mm. and a lot of my friends, if there's nothing on the line, you, you, you don't play well. And to be honest, I, I feel like if there's pressure on, I, I like just putting other people to the sword sort of thing. I love that. <laughs> you know, my old kicking coach at Cronulla when I first started goal kicking, he said, mate, if I had to give you a kick based on what I said training, you'd never get a jersey. Yeah. He said, but the fact is when we're under pressure and you need to kick a goal, you kick them. Yeah. And that's when I love doing it. It's a weird sensation that happens inside yeah. me. I, I feel like I rise to it. I just can't wait to do it yeah. just to laugh about it, to sort of you know, have a bit of a smirk at my opposition. When the heat's on, I'm going to deliver. And does it happen every time? No. Yeah. It wasn't a moment in my life where I felt like, okay, I've got to learn how to respond to pressure. Mm-hmm. It was something that from a young age, I, I remember vividly thinking when I was a kid, you know, going to football mm-hmm. games and hearing those people talk, mm-hmm. oh, that's Steve Rogers' mm-hmm. son. And me just thinking to myself, yep, I am Steve Rogers' son and I'm better than you and I'm going to yep. show you. And I just remember thinking that. I love that in an age where there's so much self-doubt and people question themselves all the time. I just love to hear someone sort of talking like that. And I think hopefully that's rubbed off to many people that you've inspired, your children and other people that have followed you. But it's interesting, before the age of sort of sports psychologists and all the rest of it, it's almost like you've reframed situations that intimidate some people to go, this is an awesome opportunity. And I remember Richie McCall sort of talking about the journey they've gone on, obviously with regards to the psychological side of the game with the All Blacks. But I think there's once upon a time where people would say to them, what happens if you don't win? And sort of this mounting pressure and the sports psychologist sort of reframed it and go, well, what happens if we do? And when you reframe it to go, what happens if we Mm. do? That's sort of uplifting and all the rest of it. But it seems like you've always 
sort of seen those situations as an opportunity to, to thrive and perform at your best through your own volition. Yeah, well, I just always thought that, I mean, not to say I've never had doubt, mm-hmm. like there's, there's no question about it, but I would never voice it. Yeah. I hear people say, oh, I'm no good at that. I'm like, why would you even say that? Yeah. Like I refuse to say I'm not good. I'm like we own you know, a number of trucks and I've never driven a truck. I just thought oh, I'll just have a go, you know, yeah. like, and I was nervous as heck, but I'm not going <laughs> to, you know, I'm not going to tell anyone. Yeah. I can deal with it. Yep. You know, I'll ask advice from people who are experienced in that field and in a day I was fine. I don't want to voice any negativity mm. into mm. the world. Yep. Like I know it sounds corny, but, you know, I play golf with guys and I say, mate, hit an eight iron. Oh, I hate my eight iron. I never hit that good, but you're not going to hit it good now. Just told yourself you're not going to hit it good. Like, I mean, why would you say that? Yeah, I I think it's that power of that voice and the self-talk. Yeah. And I don't know if it came out of, I remember in your book, you sort of said you you were spending a fair bit of time driving up to North Sydney, listening to Tony Robbins. Did any of that come in? You sort of talk about the the power of language and NLP and that sort of stuff. Did that predate listening to those sorts of things or did it really sort of ring true, the power of that voice? I'm the same as you. I can't stand any negativity of any description, whether it's in my own head or hearing it from others. And I sort of say to myself the same as you, why would you say that? Why would you vocalise that? Find a way. Find a way. That's right. Yep. Yep. I'm not a this airy-fairy, you know, everything's going to be good all the time. Like I know that. But I just, Mm. like I just just sort of figure out, I want to put the percentages in my favour. Mm-hmm. I listened to a lot of audios, like read truckloads of books, you know. Mm-hmm. There's just personal development books over the years. I've just learned to eternally be positive, you know, like just and hopefully, you know, have that rub off on the people around me. I don't want to be the bad apple in the box, you know what I mean? Yeah. I wanted to be the one that can that lift the people around me, you know. The old saying, the rising tide lifts all ships, you know. If, if my group of friends and the people that I'm around me, if we're mm. all on that positive sort of, you know, outlook, you know, we're lifting up, benefits everyone. It's not about not accepting you know, negativity and not beating your head up against the wall because sometimes mm. you've got to confront the brutal facts of life and that might be that, hey, this business that we're in here, it's mm. not going to work. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter how much we try, this is not our mm-hmm. area. We need to shift or we need to pivot here, otherwise we're going broke. Um, mm-hmm. That's the reality of life. I'm not an idiot, but you know, at the same time, I'm certainly going to be way more positive in the outset than negative. And and even if internally there's some doubts, I'm going to keep them to myself for the moment because the people around me mightn't have those doubts. Yep. And as soon as I voice them, then all of a sudden they've got the doubts too. And they might have the positive feedback that I need to lift me up, mm. to get me over the hump that mm. keeps me moving in the right direction. So yeah, look, it hasn't come without, there's been a lot of, internal dialogue there's been a lot of soul searching at times there's been a lot of mm-hmm. input from bad authors or uh, mentors in my mm-hmm. life and that have helped me get to this position but you know i've been through a lot and you know, the world's thrown a lot at me that i honestly feel like sean i promise you i feel like right now uh, I'm, I'm getting mm-hmm. started like i feel like after yep. everything that i've overcome i feel like the slate's now like I, I feel like i'm on a level playing field i feel like i've been fighting uphill a little bit for quite a while and I feel yep, like now's yep. the time to launch. I'm excited about the next 10 years. No, I love that. And I can I can even feel that obviously through, you know, the camera on that side of it. So it's contagious for the right reasons. I want to ask you about mental health. I know you're passionate about mental health. Unfortunately, you lost your father. Yep. So that wrestle with, with mental health, 
I understand an uncle as well. And and like you said before, you're not bulletproof. You're human. We're all human. What sort of habits or practices or things do you do to stay in a healthy frame of mind? I wake up every day at 4.30 in the morning and go walking or running or do some sort of exercise for an hour with mm-hmm. a good friend of mine that we chat and discuss mm-hmm. life and get it all out there. And we made a pact recently. Um, <laughs> we've been going through a little bit business-wise and yep. we've been wrestling with a few things and there's been a lot of negativity in the chat. Mm. And, you know, I felt like a little bit sort of, you know, coming away from that feeling a little bit just disheveled in mm-hmm. the sense, you know, mm-hmm. to start the day that way. So we made a pact that there's not allowed to be any negativity and this has like been going for a couple of weeks now. We, we just <laughs> said, right, okay, so so we've done it for the morning. I yep. said, right, now we've got to shift it to the day. Yep. No negativity for the day. Yep. doesn't matter how bad something gets, we've got to think of how we can spin that into something positive. Yep. Man, it is hard. <laughs> it's hard. Yep. And try that for a day, not to complain about something. Yeah, yeah, Man, yeah. It's, it's tough. But I feel like that helps me enormously, mm-hmm. kicking the day off mm-hmm. with some exercise. And, and everybody's got – Busy lives, don't, you know, mm-hmm. I, I get it. Don't tell me you can't find time because mm-hmm. you can. Mm-hmm. It's a decision. Yeah. And my wife is in radio production. She produces a breakfast show here on the Gold Coast for mm-hmm. the, one of the big stations and she's up at 4.30. So figure up, she's up at 4.30. Why, up? Why can't I get up at 4.30? So I do and, yep. you know, I go and walk yep. and run and, and swim down at the beach. And yep. just a really good way to start my day. And I feel like the busier you are, the more important this mm. is. Because mm-hmm. the busier you are, the less of your own time you get. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in life, the people who are the most successful, people who can solve the biggest problems. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's what I feel like. Yep. Higher up the food chain you are in business, mm-hmm. the bigger problems you've got to solve and yep. the bigger problems you can solve, the more further up the food chain you move. Yep. I feel like if your whole life starts off from the moment you wake up to solving problems, mm-hmm. it can grate on you. Yeah. That couple of hours that I have of my own time in the morning mm. just allows me to have order of a day to myself. Yeah. Because not many people are up at four thirty five in the morning. It gives me that opportunity just to reflect on the day before, reflect on the day ahead, assess what needs to be done and, and move in the right direction. I've also got some good people around me mm-hmm. that I sort of confide in and trust mm-hmm. who can, you know, help me navigate those waters. I've lost some close friends in recent times to suicide, which has really knocked me about a bit. Mm. Having those people in my corner has, has really helped. And, and, you know, my brother and I are incredibly tight mm. and, you know, we're in touch regularly and mm. I couldn't love a guy any more than I love that bloke. And, mm. and I think the, the feeling's mutual, so we're in constant communication and um, it helps. It's awesome. Uh, I love that, the endorphins and the exercise in the morning. I love the connectivity with a great mate, saying that you can be open, vulnerable. Sounds like you've got that nice little pact around sort of mm. positivity as opposed to negativity because I think our brains are obviously wide, hardwired to protect ourselves and save ourselves and see all the negatives out there and the threats that was probably quite relevant back in the saber-toothed tiger days. But in today's day and yeah. age, a lot of those threats and uh, issues we see out there never eventuate. So it's good that you've got yeah. a good mate to sort of reframe some of that stuff. But yeah, is there, is there anything else you do like journaling or meditation or anything else? It seems like you're, you're really conscious of that self-talk and the language, you know? Yeah. I listen to different podcasts mm. from time to time. I, I wouldn't say there's one thing that I listen to or one thing mm-hmm. that I read. I love reading autobiographies um, just purely because consider for the cost of 20 bucks, you get someone's entire life mm. in a book. 
yeah what we can learn from those i just read the undisputed truth mike tyson's book ah. uh recently wow what a what a story wow quite sad but you know mm. i guess the the outcome where he's at now is, is quite inspiring so to see what he's been through mm. and, and to come out the other side and to sort of be where he's at where he's at in his life it's, it's pretty inspiring i like to read autobiographies i've got a lot of friends that listen to a lot of podcasts that i'll flick me one from time to time but yeah just that that sort of me time in the morning yep. if you could call it that certainly yep. sets me up you know when i miss it because i'm traveling or things that happen with kids or we're looking mm. after a grandson or something it um but i certainly notice it so yep. it's a big part of my day and a big part of what uh, sets me up for a good day leading into a good week yeah now it sounds like it's working really well for you so i too enjoy that morning routine you talk in your book and we've touched on it already today around always needing to be in the fight in the grind and that's what brings out the best in you what do you think it is about being in that fight and striving towards something that gives you that fulfillment and perhaps brings out the best in who you are? What is it about that? What can you sort of share from that sort of journey or experience? When I started playing rugby league, I didn't realise how powerful it was, how powerful a goal was. Um, mm. When you're playing a team sport, you are fortunate enough to get a goal set for you every week mm -hmm. to win that game. Mm. What I realised when I retired, I went through about 18 months of soul searching. I, 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 we travelled a lot, my wife and I, and you know we had a lovely time. But I remember 18 months after retirement, just sitting at home. I was feeling a bit flat. I actually went into the the Gold Coast, India, it was at the time, and mm. I was in an Uber, and uh, this guy was driving me in the Uber and he said to me, what are you, you retired now? And I'm like, yeah. And I said, he goes, I retired. He goes, you know, I retired three years ago, but I, I couldn't do it. I had to come back mm -hmm. and do something, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and I was sitting there thinking, man, I'm, I'm feeling like that at the moment, you know, mm -hmm. like I'm feeling, I was probably drinking too much and just not focused on my health. And I got to the race and I was in the sort of VIP area and Gordon Tallis was there. And I started telling Gordy how I was feeling. I was like, man, I'm just not, Myself, you know, I'm just not feeling it, not feeling life. I don't know what, what it is. He goes, mate, how long have you been retired? Mm. He goes, you've been retired 18 months. I'm like, yeah, he goes, that's how long it takes until you realise yeah. what that yeah. game gave you yeah. about, you know, having something to fight for, you know, that week in, week out goal. Having that purpose. Yeah, purpose, you know, and I realised I had none of that. Mm. We had money, we had a good life, but we didn't have any purpose attached to it. I mm. went and chatted with a business mentor of mine. I said, mm -hmm. right. Let's get going. You know, I want to yep. want to start to set some goals and start to fire yep. up. I, I thought it was achieving the goal. Mm. I thought it was achieving the goal that that mm. was it. It wasn't achieving the goal. When I achieved our first goal in business, I remember thinking, you know, where are the fireworks? You know, where are all the <laughs> where's all the hoopla? Like I'm meant to yeah, be like yeah. in achieving the goal. Yeah, is where you get that fire. You know yep. that. You know, waking up, fired up, jumping out of bed because you're excited about mm -hmm. what you're sort of going after. Mm -hmm. I realised like. Celebrate achieving that goal, but man, mm. don't not set another one. Yeah. And when I say goals, I'm not talking about like just, uh, you know, I want to make a thousand bucks, like something that has some substance to it. Mm. That's mm. what my wife and I do. We sit down and go, okay, right, what do we want to do? Where do we want to be here? How are we going to achieve that? Work back from there, you know, put some things in place, celebrate the milestones along the way and try to achieve that goal. And I had this 
quote said to me many years ago by my mentor, he goes, mate, put your goals in concrete mm-hmm. and your plans in sand. Mm-hmm. Don't change your yeah. goal. Yeah. Life's going to happen. Things yep. are going to happen. You know, we had an autistic child throughout mm-hmm. one of our business goals mm-hmm. and it just derailed us completely. And mm-hmm. It didn't change our goal. We just had to move the date. But yep. put a date on it. Because if it doesn't have a date on it, it's just a wish. Mm. You've got to have a time frame on it, otherwise you're not going to get the job done. And I sort of like the fact that I was told that early on in my sort of career outside of football because I was, it would have been easy for me just to cruise through. Mm. Mm. But I wouldn't have had the enjoyment that I have in sort of fighting for something and struggling. I remember we were struggling to sort of do reach some things business-wise and oh, I just thought, oh, we'll do it next year, next financial year, you know, like, mm. And my mate was like, no, 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 it's not happening. It's happening this financial year. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Matt, I don't think we can do it. And he's like, it's a cop out. You're just yeah. pushing it back. You can yeah. do it. You yeah. know, we sort of pushed hard and we got, we achieved what we wanted to achieve. And man, that was a good feeling to actually do that, to push hard. It set me in good stead for the future because it was really, well, for me, when I perform my best is when the whips are cracking, you know, when the heat's on. And mm-hmm. if it's like, too far away, like if it's too easy, oh, I'll mm. do it tomorrow. You know, the old yeah. saying, if you want something done, ask a busy person because mm-hmm. I'll just do what needs to be done and I'll move on to the next thing. You yeah. know, someone who's like, you know, sitting at home on the couch, like ring them, can you help me out? Oh, no, man, I'm, no, busy. I'm busy. I haven't got time. <laughs> I'm busy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, like busy, far yeah, right. out. Yeah. I'd sometimes yeah. want to grab people and just shake them and just go, man, busy, yeah. come to my house. Yeah, yeah, just watch me for a day. Like, yeah. Yeah. Come to my life yeah. for yeah. a moment yeah. and tell me you're busy. Yeah. I'm not the busiest person. What I know there's way busier people that get more done. Yeah. But I'm certainly not sitting on my butt, you know, yeah. twiddling my thumbs. Yeah. The most important thing for me is just having that goal set and that time frame put on it. And yeah. when that's done, then we work back from that and then we go hard. And yeah. if we achieve it sooner, great. Yeah. But that goal is set in concrete. The plans are set in sand because life can change. But we've yeah. got to have that goal set in concrete, put a time frame on it. Absolutely. Just sort of building on, on that sort of response, obviously you, you're a parent, you've got four kids, you're now a grandparent. What can you share about what you've learned as a parent on that journey? I've got four kids as well, and, and it's a constant arm wrestle around how do I show up as a parent to give them the best start and platform to to do their thing and all the rest of it, and, and it's something that you never really feel like you master. So having gone that journey yourself, and obviously you're still on that journey, what have been some of your sort of key realisations as a parent? Oh, man, you know, this is like an evolving <laughs> thing for me. I, I tell you, like I've really... I'm in a bit of a transitional period right now. Mm. When I say transitional, it's like after writing my book, I grew into my adulthood resenting my childhood. Mm. Um, I just thought it was too hard. I thought it shouldn't have been that hard, you know. Like Mm -hmm. I wrote the book and realised my childhood was what made me. Mm. So now I'm thinking, am I doing too much for my kids? Am I making them soft? Am Mm. I creating an environment for my kids to thrive in adulthood? Mm. Or am I sabotaging him? Mm. I'm a little torn on that one at the moment mm. because I yep. think there's, if you get the balance wrong there, you can really, mm. you can screw your kids up or you yep. can set them up for failure in adulthood. Mm. So it's something that my wife and I discussed a bit. A few years back, I was really critical of the way my wife was, mm. you know, with my son, Max, with our son, Max, mm. who's autistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... Um, not publicly critical, but critical to her and how she was making him do certain things. Mm-hmm. And she fired back at me saying, listen, he, he's going to grow up 
and be independent. We, if we want him to grow up and be independent, we have to be mm-hmm. hard on him. Mm-hmm. You know, Max now gets himself to work. He's doing mm-hmm. great. He's a leader at his high school. And, and I was wrong in that instance mm-hmm. and I had to mm-hmm. apologise for that. Mm-hmm. We're going through some other situations now. I've got a 15-year-old daughter mm-hmm. and I'm a fairly protective father. <laughs> my wife's still like trying to slow me down and trying mm-hmm. to put boundaries around my parenting around my daughter at the moment. Yeah. And she said something very poignant to me. She goes, you know what boys are like? You know, 16, 17. Mm-hmm. I said, of course I do. She goes, yeah. I know what girls are like. Yeah. Let me be a mother to yeah. our daughter. Yeah. Get out of the way. I can handle this. And yeah. it was like, oh, I've got to trust my wife on this. Yeah. It's a tough road to navigate because I see my little princess and I see mm. oh. these circling sharks. And yeah. I'm like, yeah. 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 you know, like, know where you're coming from. so yeah. I've had to sit down in this room, particularly just recently with <laughs> the new boyfriend and have a serious conversation about yeah. Yeah. what I expect as a father. But that is a, I don't ever want to see my kids hurt. Mm. But at the same time, I don't want them to grow up not experiencing what it feels like to be hurt because it's going to hurt you in their life. So it's, yeah. I've got to take a step back. In saying that, like, you know, I, I just think well, there's an element of this generation that are a little bit too easily hurt and mm. this next generation that, you know, you can't speak the truth because, you know, they'll have to go on sick leave or anxiety leave because mm. you've told them that they're not mm. doing their job right and I don't want my kids to be that. So it's an ever-changing environment, that mm. one. Mm. One thing I did say, you know, my grandson is 20 months old now and we're about to have our second grandchild. My son's about to have our first granddaughter next month. So oh, I'm, um, I have said to them, all my, my kids, my four kids, I said, you better behave as children, otherwise you're out of the will and the grandkids are getting over <laughs> 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 they're, they're on notice. <laughs> they're on notice. Yeah. But, but I feel yeah. like my kids... I feel like, in a sense, I've set an example for my kids of what it takes to succeed. Mm-hmm. I haven't done that one to them and telling them. I feel yep. like I've shown them. Yep. And I feel like I need to step back a little bit, particularly my older kids who are mm-hmm. 26 and 23. Mm-hmm. My older son works for me and, and my daughter's partner works for me. So mm-hmm. I've sort of laid a platform for them to succeed and mm-hmm. I'm always here to help and guide and advise if they needed, but I don't want to overstep. One set of parents now, the other set are about to become parents mm. and we'll always be here to help. My younger kids, you know, Maxie, he's very, he's 16, he's autistic, but mm. he's found his way and he, mm. he knows what he loves. He's, you know, he's right into his jujitsu now. He's been doing that for a few years. And I've had to lay down the sword on that one because he'd tie me into a knot if I tried to wrestle him <laughs> now. He's, he's yeah. terrifying, he's yeah. six foot three and an absolute weapon. So, I'm, yeah. but he's focused. In everything that he does, that he's passionate about, he's mm. incredibly focused and I, yeah. I love that about him. And my daughter, yeah. she's got something in her that's unique and she's got this mm. sort of mongrel competitor in her that mm. I don't think she will allow people to get on top of her in terms of mm-hmm. in any field. So I feel like she's like things are in good stead there. So I just want to sort mm-hmm. of sit back in terms of the parenting now and sort of try to sort mm. of help where I can but not overstep. So it's... Um, yeah, if you call me next week, I might say, mate, I've had to jump right in. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's an ever-changing environment, you know. Absolutely. It's a moving target, that's for sure. I mean, mm. you sort of talk about resilience, you talk about that inner belief, you talk about work ethic being cornerstones to your success. And maybe if you didn't word it that way, that's certainly apparent reading your book and listening to how you've gone about your journey thus far. I mean, we talk about parenting, 
know, as a parent, I'd love to install those things into my children. If I could get that into mm. my children, that would be amazing. But I mean, you, you sort of talk about shepherding your kids, guiding your kids. How do you sort of build those muscles of, I think, perhaps three of the most important things around work ethic, resilience, and just that inner belief. If you have them mastered, maybe with some good manners and being a good human, you're probably set for a pretty good life. So how do you sort of build those attributes that are all important in life? And probably the most important thing that my wife and I have tried to instill in our kids is good manners. Mm. Just it doesn't cost anything. And yeah. if you're respectful and you can build relationships, that's 90% of the battle. Skills can be taught bad attitude nobody wants it so we've always tried to instill that and and probably the most proudest thing i am of my kids is um a friend of mine sees them out and about or sees them anywhere they'll always give me rings oh, i saw jack down at pacific fair today he came over and mm. said hey shook my hand he goes geez he's a lovely mm. kid and mm. um that matters to me more than anything but in terms of the other stuff i just think telling kids what to do just doesn't work. Mm. You've got to model it. If mm. you don't model it, the old do as I say, not as I do, mm. is just mm. the most inane yeah. quote I've ever heard in my life. It is every sense of integrity that I would, I've tried to live my life by. So it's about just modeling behaviors that you want your kids to, mm. to live up to. We still live a disciplined life. I could probably wake up at nine o'clock and I could probably go and play golf and, you know, make a few phone calls in the afternoon, make sure, you know, our business interests are in the position that they need to be. I don't want to do that. I don't want our staff to think that I'm lazy. I don't, I don't want anybody who works with or for me to feel like I'm not the hardest worker in the room. That's mm. reality. How can I demand something of someone mm -hmm. if I'm not prepared to do it myself? Hence me learning how to drive the truck. Mm -hmm. that, uh, or one of the trucks so I can jump in at any time and I do from time to time and it's quite funny when I rock up to a, to a big job site and they're like, oh, what, you're driving yeah. a truck? I'm like, yeah, yeah I am. Yep. Yeah. I said, I, yeah. I mean, it's part of my role as the owner of this business. I, I want to be able to operate everything that we own. I feel like modelling is the best form of teaching and you know, barking orders is the worst and yeah. treating people with respect regardless of their position in any business being that I, I think the most dangerous person for anybody in business is to just be that positional leader that leads by a title not by a mm. actions exactly it's a, yeah, it's a dangerous place to be and i think you've got a very short uh, future in leadership if that's the way you lead yeah now I, I love the fact that if i look back over my life and career whether as a child with my parents or in business i think the best way I've learnt or evolved or realised things on my own is just by osmosis. I've seen how mum and dad carry themselves and hold yep. themselves, how they go about their work, building that sort of foundation for a family and then in the business context, how that person rocks up every day, the attitude, the work ethic, how they conduct themselves. It's not always what you read in a book or you see or hear on a podcast. It's about seeing that firsthand and obviously you would have seen mm. that on the football field and you've seen that in business. And I think being that example, if you get one thing right as a parent or in business, then hopefully if you set the tone through how you conduct yourself, you're controlling a good part of what you can control to hopefully that to resonate to those around you. It doesn't guarantee everything, but I think no. you're more than half a chance if you're living and breathing that rather than espousing these ideals and being nowhere near it. Well, if you're lucky enough to be in a position where you want something and you know someone who's got what you want, and they're willing to sort of take you under their wing. And so yeah. I found like 
you know, throughout my life. I've had people that have been exactly where I want to be and I've been lucky mm -hmm. enough to be able to get under that person's wing and just take mm -hmm. and just absorb everything. And, and one of the most important yep. aspects of my life, I believe, and one of the reasons why I was successful was I was coachable. Yep, yep. You had a willingness to learn and listen. and yeah. So many people are just like, nah, I can do it better. Yep. So what are you trying to prove here? Like yep. do exactly what that person did and you'll get exactly what that person's got. If that person's got, when I say what that person's got, I've always looked beyond material stuff. Mm -hmm. For me, it's, it's about what their life looks like. Mm -hmm. Is that the person who I want to be like? Have they got the relationships I want? Have they got, yeah. you know, the financial means that I want? Have they got the marriage that I want? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, that, the relationship with the kids that I want. Yep. You know, that whole package is what mm -hmm. I want. Like, I'm, I'm not greedy. I don't want my, I don't want to, I said, I might sound greedy. Like, I want everything, but. Well, why not? Yeah, exactly. There's no point like, having success that. in one element and failing miserably with your health yeah. or relationships. Or yeah, absolutely. What's the point? Absolutely. So, there's too many lone rangers out there. They want to go out and, you know, try to reinvent the wheel or do it themselves. So, there's a lot of successful people in this world. And you've probably, or if you listen to this, you've probably got successful people in your life. Mm -hmm. And most successful people that I know are happy to share. Mm. what they've done, how they've done it. Yep. You mightn't like what you hear. And there were many times where I didn't like what I heard. Yeah. Well, it's confronting sometimes, yeah. But I'm like, all right, well, if that's what it takes, mm. Mm. that's what it takes, that's yep. what I'll do. And invariably, when I've done that, well, not invariably, every single time, every single time, not, not well, oh, I happened this time, didn't happen. No, no, every single time mm. where I've got advice from someone who's had what I wanted and I'm chasing after exactly that goal, mm -hmm. it has materialised yep. every time. And, oh, yeah, I did that with this guy. But I said, yeah, but did you? Mm. Did you really? Mm. Like, so we told you to do this, this, and this, but you didn't like that. Mm. Told you to do this, this, but you didn't like that. Mm -hmm. You can't have your cake and eat it. You can't cut corners mm. off the recipe for success. Mm -hmm. You just can't. Like, yeah. there's it, a proven formula there. If you follow it, it will work. And it's just the nature of life. It's the way things work. And there are plenty of uncomfortable moments in our business, plenty of uncomfortable moments in our marriage, plenty of uncomfortable moments in relationships that I've had to confront. But once confronted and, and moved through that, it's good. Yep. Change is great when it's done. Yeah, absolutely. On, on the other side of change, right? Yeah. No, not fun in the process. No. Know, is she comfortable? No. But what's in comfort? Like there's no, I don't think there's much joy in comfort, you know, to be honest. No. There's moments of comfort that are good, but I don't think, Comfort breeds nah. uh, mediocrity. Well, I love this quote. The comfort zone is a beautiful place, but nothing ever grows there, right? No, we can right. all be comfortable. We can stay in that sort of safe space. But, you know, fast forward four or five years down the track, you're still in that place, right? But being uncomfortable and the process of changes, you know, you think, shit, I'd love to go back to that comfortable place sometimes. But then once you get through it and come out the other side, you think, shit, you know, I'll never turn back. It was worth it. And once you realize, you say there is a process you remind yourself when you're sort of going into that valley of death and you want to pull back, you're like, no, nah, no, nah, if I keep going, I'll pop out the other Let's side go. and yeah, it'll come yeah, good. Yeah. 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 yeah I had a, we had a, a trainer, Billy Johnson. Oh, mate, it, it was brutal. And he had this <laughs> yeah. big circle and it had a comfort zone. Yeah. And then he had a little picture of us outside of the comfort zone. And this is where results happen, you know, like yeah, yeah. just stuck in my mind. And it's like, mate, I've never yeah, been yeah. more uncomfortable than I was training for him two years. It was the hardest two years of my life. 
Well, yeah, I, I yeah. love in your book where Billy's trying to break you down. He's trying to do everything. Oh. You know, you roll your ankle, he puts you in the pool, you swim 5Ks and all the rest of it, and you come in, I think, a little underdone. You had a bit of time off, and he was trying to break you down, break you down. You just kept fronting up, fronting up. And then I think you got to that moment when you realized you had Billy's number, and I think you winked at him or smiled at him. You go, Billy, you're yeah. not going to break me, mate. I've got you. And he just sort of smiled yeah, back at yeah. Yeah. He smiled back at you going, that was my goal, but you come out the other yeah. side, so respect. Well yeah. done. I'll, I'll move on to my next victim. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> so some pretty uncomfortable moments and, and bodily fluids mm. coming out of your mouth that you probably didn't yeah. need to revisit. But anyway, you, you got out the other side and you're better for it. But keen to hear about your journey with young Max. He sounds like he's now uh, a weapon on the jiu-jitsu yeah. mat, uh, but no doubt a bit of a journey. And I remember in your book, you're sort of saying that used to wake up to this beautiful cuddle and kiss from Maxie in the morning yeah. and, and I think about 15, 18 months you realised that that had changed. Uh, all of a sudden mm-hmm. young Maxie wasn't uh, showing his old man that same sort of love. You sort of took that personally. So yeah. talk to me about that journey with Maxie and now you've gone on to do amazing stuff with where Max is at and going and obviously your yeah. charity for ASD Kids has raised millions of dollars so you're having huge impact. <laughs> so what can you share in that regard, mate? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a long time ago now, but mm. sort of going back, it was probably one of the more challenging times in my life to mm. see your son regress mm. in a sense that it looked like he was sort of saying a few little words and then all of a sudden that just stopped and then his engagement stopped and we just sort of lost the, just had sort of had a glaze over his eyes and we just completely lost to our family. And the challenge wasn't so much of what to do as much as, what's going on mm-hmm. you know that was the scariest yep. thing i mean you know as an athlete when i got injured being injured wasn't the issue it was all right well, tell me what the injury is and then once i know what yep. the injury is we can what rehab it we can fix it mm-hmm. we can get back on mm-hmm. track and being that sort of you know that male mentality of like how do we fix this and my, you know my wife was, was pretty devastated at the time like mm-hmm. not knowing what was going on that was the concern for me. It was like, okay, well, what do we need to do? Like, give me a diagnosis or something. You know, mm-hmm. we went through this probably six to eight months of no diagnosis and not having any real clue on a pathway to, to help him overcome these challenges that we sort of saw in front of us. And he just totally disengaged from the family. Mm-hmm. It was like we'd lost our son. Mm-hmm. You know, we had 15 and 16-year-old kids at the time. No, younger, sorry, probably 10 and 11-year-old kids at the time. And Phoenix was just born. Um, our youngest daughter was just born at this, this stage. So we were sort of like, you know, we were busy. And I had my sporting career and mm. I was still playing for the Titans and Chloe was in radio and we were juggling a whole heap of stuff and we sort of really didn't know where to turn. So we eventually sort of, after a barrage of tests and this, that and the other, we, we finally got the diagnosis that he was on the autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. And again, like, I really had no idea of what that meant or how that mm. Mm. looked mm. moving forward. We ended up finding a school to put Max into that offered ABA therapy, which is a really intensive form of therapy, one-on-one type therapy with children. And, and not every autistic child responds to it, mm. but Max did. Mm. And, you know, after a few months, we sort of started to see some changes in Max. We put him on a really you know, high dose of omega-3 to try to help sort of his brain function. And mm-hmm. we saw dramatic changes in, in that. We're getting some this omega three sent over from the US that wasn't allowed into Australia. Probably shouldn't say that, but we we just we're looking for. Oh, we're, you do what you do as a parent, answers, right? yeah. you know, like we're mixing it into his milk in the morning. Yeah, uh, it was just the most horrendous smelling drink. 
but he just drank it. Yeah. Maybe he just knew there was something good in it. We saw these dramatic changes and um, after about three months, Max came home from kindy and he told his mum he loved him. He said, I, mm. I love you, mum. To us, it was just like an earth-shattering moment, you know, like to have our son start to talk to us again and mm. re-engage with us mm. was pretty special. He stayed in that school for three years. It was an incredibly expensive exercise back then. There was no NDIS or anything. So, mm-hmm. But, you know, you do what you got to do for your, your children. Mm-hmm. Sort of after, after three, three to six months or so, my, my wife was just really taken aback at the fact that we we sort of jumped a queue to get into that school and, and we thought we spoke to the school about it. We said, oh, look, was that because of who we were and mm. that? And I sort of felt bad about mm. it. And she said, no, no, it wasn't because of who you were. It was because you could afford it and all the people ahead of you couldn't afford it. So my mm. wife had this mm. idea to start a charity and help the families that were before us and and, uh, and others and, yep. yeah, we were able to do that. So that was a real passion project for us. We still do a bit, you know, with the help of, of many other people, the, the, the Joe and Renee Ingalls of the world and, you know, many other people here on the Gold Coast who, who mm. help us raise funds for the for the mm. charity and, you know, are able to do some good in the community. We're, we're certainly not a McGrath-type foundation. McGrath Foundation sort of type in, in terms of that scale, mm. but just sort of trying yep. to do our bit to to help these families that are and children mm. that are through no fault of their own Landed mm. with this issue that can be the most daunting thing that you'll ever face. But Maxie's flying now, which is great. <laughs> yeah, that's good. It sounds like he's really starting to hit his straps and, and obviously things are starting to become a bit clearer for him and he's starting to figure things out, obviously, with a lot of support from you guys, which must be incredibly rewarding after, no doubt, plenty of challenges and, and sort of stumbling blocks and not always having the, the obvious answer, but it sounds like he's really sort of starting to hit his straps. And my understanding is you've got people like Steve Jobs and other people that sit somewhere on that continuum of the autism spectrum, mm. and obviously they go on to achieve some pretty amazing stuff because they see the world differently. So, you know, potentially it's a strength, but at times, no doubt, it, it's a bit of a battle. Yeah, I, I think if you put Max into a role that he's passionate about, Mm, you won't find mm. a better person for it. Like, it's just yep, the reality yep. of it. I mean, his jiu-jitsu coach said to me a while back, he's like, I've never had a – he's a little Brazilian guy. He's a black belt. Yeah. He's a phenomenal athlete. And he said to me, yeah. he goes, I've never had a student like your son. I'm like, what's that? And he goes, <laughs> when I instruct him, it's like he's staring into my soul. And I'm like, and then he goes and does, and then he goes and does exactly what I tell him, you know. And I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah it sounds about perfectly. right, you know. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And <laughs> it's quite, uh, yeah. Hence the fact that I no longer want to wrestle around, roll around no, with no. Matt on the, with Max on the mats because he to yeah. tie me in a knot. So, um, but yeah, it's great to see that he's found something that he's passionate about. That's sort of that you know extracurricular activity that keeps him active and keeps him physically fit um which i love because yeah. he's he certainly wasn't engaging in team sports like my other kids were yeah but yeah look I, you know he's in year 11 now he's a school leader at his school which he's the first ever special needs leader at the school which is great he's learned to he's certainly not you know the life of the party but he's certainly become a lot better with his social engagement and i can see some good things happening for him in his, in his future it's not you know i'm not going to sit here and say he's going to you know, become a brain surgeon but I'm certainly mm-hmm. not going to sit here and say he's not because I don't know what the future holds for him. Um, mm-hmm. He's a focused young man and he's, he's got to work on some aspects of his life that he knows about and he's reading and, and stuff like that but he's come a heck of a long way and we're super proud of him. 
No, well, it seems like you're giving him every chance and he's certainly progressing and, and going well despite some of those challenges. So another good example of, I guess, a curveball you guys have had to to tackle and it seems like you've done a positive job of that and the impact that you guys are having on other families that are maybe not as fortunate as what you and Chloe were with the resources to sort of embark on that journey. And mm. uh, my understanding is you've raised well in excess of $3 million, which is uh, yep. an amazing result. So uh, we'll certainly put some details in on the show note for anyone that wants to sort of contribute or get involved and Great. I guess what you're doing there. And, and I guess, mate, I'm, I'm conscious of time. I could bow you up here all day easily and, and just keep <laughs> pinning, you know, <laughs> questions at you. So... I'm conscious of your time, mate, but, you know, just talk to us now quickly about what life looks like after football and you talked about some of your business interests and and I'm loving your book at the moment, you know, Father's Son, which could have been No Plan B as a different change yeah. up to that title, but, mate, loving it as a parent, as someone that wants to strive and achieve, it's inspirational. There's certainly, uh, whilst it might be fairy tale, some of the outcomes, you've had to navigate some tragedies and challenges and, and I love it for those reasons as much as any else but you know what, what are you up to uh, now that football's behind you what does life look like for Matt Rogers now it's pretty busy juggling a few balls but it's all good um, you know <laughs> sort of working now on on radio with SEN the sports entertainment network um, so throughout the free mm-hmm. season but we also have a civil business where we sort of you know move mm-hmm. dirt around the country and then we've got a sports management business that keeps me pretty busy as well you know dealing with young athletes and trying to you know, facilitate pathways for them, but also just sort of try to be a bit more of a mentor aspect rather than the traditional mm-hmm. type manager that goes and negotiates the contract. I love getting eyeball to eyeball with these young athletes, be it men or women, young men or young women, yep. Um, yep. and really just trying to help them understand what it truly takes to be a professional athlete. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between playing a professional game and being a professional athlete. And yeah. I think probably the longevity of my career was, was marked upon me being a professional athlete not just mm. playing a professional game. You know, you get paid enough in rugby league or rugby union nowadays to be professional, mm. but mm. that doesn't mean you're a professional athlete. And it's yeah. just helping young athletes understand the difference mm-hmm. and making sure when the opportunity arises for them, they're ready. And I love that. And, you know, we're very selective with who we take on our books. Mm. You know, I love sitting down with those kids and we've, we've, we've had to let a few kids go because, mm-hmm. you know, the reality is that, I, you know, I just can't see their lifestyle equating to a professional mm. life uh, yep. in sport and as try as much as we can things haven't changed so it's mm-hmm. you know the reality is that you know we have to part ways and I'm not mm-hmm. you know it's sad but you know the reality is that you know I, I've only got so much time and yep. I want to invest time in people that want to invest in themselves so that's where we're at with that um, you know we run the charity as well my wife and I and um, yeah so we're pretty busy and and obviously you got you know the kids and grandkids so but my goal yeah. my, my, my actual goal <laughs> that's driving me right now is I just turned 47 you know my goal is at 50 to go on the senior golf tour so well, I've got about two years of just solidifying our business interests and making sure that they're flowing the way that they need to, which I think on the right path, which is which is great. And then, you know, it's just a lock in for a solid year of just um, practice and, and work on the golf game and then go on the senior tour at age 50 and travel around Australia with my wife and visit all the beautiful places where they have senior tour events and, you know, play these tour events and um, enjoy my retirement in that sense. 
Oh, well, you'd be a brave person to bet against you, mate, based on your form. So I'm, I'm confident that in the future, we may well see you on the tour and, and doing great things. So, yeah, mate, I just want to thank you for your time, mate. You've been very generous. We're really looking forward to catching up with you face to face with our leadership team soon. I've loved your book, mate. You're an inspirational person. You're a great role model. I've taken so much from the book. I've loved the podcast. So keep doing your great work and uh, really looking forward to catching up in person, mate. But just so grateful of your time and your messages that you've imparted on me today and and obviously the the conversation we have in the future. So thanks so much, mate. No worries. Appreciate it, Sean. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in. means the world to me. Uh, If you got something of value out of the podcast, I'd love you to pay it forward and share it with anyone that might benefit. Thanks again for tuning in.